Welcome to Prescribing Prosperity with your hosts, John and Alex Sutsos from MedWealth Financial Services, operating through IPC Securities Corporation. In this podcast, we provide unique insights into wealth management, the psychology of financial decisions, and help listeners place the capital markets into perspective. Our aim is to help physicians, business owners, and other medical professionals to live their dream. Life is to live and enjoy, so we'll also cover health and lifestyle-related topics such as food, dining, travel, and unique experiences. Learn how global trends shape our investment strategy as we help you assemble your roadmap to prosperity. All right, welcome to the Prescribing Prosperity podcast with John and Alex Sutos. Guys, uh, this is a podcast today aimed primarily at Canadian investors, and I and I see that you've uh, you've got a guest in to help you talk about this subject and maybe inform your investors or potential investors a little bit better. Uh, this morning we have uh, Ron Lokaising, who is a guest host, who's going to be acting as the everyday Canadian, looking for information about what all these fancy terms mean in terms of investment accounts and distinguishing features of each. So uh, we're going to let him uh, run the show and uh, we'll just be here to answer the questions and have a conversation. I appreciate uh, you having me on and uh, hopefully we can clarify some of the uh, alphabet soup of the financial uh, uh, you know, industry terms that everybody has sometimes problems with. I know I have, I have uh, over the past years. I've been investing uh, uh, with you and on other investments uh, for over 20 years. And every so often, I still have to come back and go, well, what, what does this term mean? And how does that relate to me and where I'm heading and what I'm doing? So I think this is a great opportunity for people to learn a lot of things and maybe even re-listen to the podcast from time to time to get some clarification based on where they are. That's um, actually a great idea. I think this is going to be an, an evergreen uh, sh show where people can refer to it as, as they wish. Absolutely. I mean, we were just talking about, you know, when certain things were introduced, for example, uh, in Canada, when was the uh, TFSA introduced, uh, you know, and was it still something that I should be looking at uh, other than RSP, for example. But, you know, why don't we start with that? Like, I think the basic thing that most Canadians are looking at are RSPs. And other than understanding what the letters stand for, what is an RSP and why should someone consider that and maybe consider it as, as soon as possible? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, really, it all begins with the process of financial planning. So when we first meet a a client, uh, the objective is to uh, get a financial profile, and, and that involves identifying their their income, their annual income, their employer, their tenure there, uh, what their objectives are in terms of when they would like to reach retirement or semi-retirement age, and then uh, uh, identifying what their current assets are, what their current liabilities are, and then putting together a plan to create a system by which they will be investing on a monthly basis, plus utilizing what they've accumulated to date in order to, to get to that target. And there's various account forms that are utilized in order to have that money grow. And each one can be viewed as, a, as an umbrella from, from the, the umbrella providing some tax sheltering and what is not under the umbrella is not gonna be tax sheltered. So the RSP is the cornerstone 
of the tax-sheltered accounts that are available to Canadians. And essentially, when you put money into an RRSP, uh, which stands for Registered Retirement Savings Plan, the amount you put in can be deducted from your income. And when you deduct it from your income, you essentially will get a, a refund of the taxes you've paid when you file your tax return. So in essence, when you put in uh, your after-tax dollars into the RSP, it allows you to recoup the uh, the remainder of the tax dollars so your money is whole again. So you're back to uh, 100 cent dollars. And now that money is being productively invested. An RRSP is not a specific investment. It's just the name of the account type. It's a tax shelter. It's an umbrella under which you can invest in many, many different things. You can invest in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and uh, potentially a few other things. But that is essentially it. It's, a, it's an account with which you build your retirement. And uh, you can you can contribute, can continue contributing to a, a retirement savings plan or an RSP uh, up until the age in, in which you, uh, the year in which you turn 71 by December 31st, mm -hmm. uh, at which point uh, you must convert the plan to a registered retirement income fund and begin a minimum withdrawal process that starts the following year. And that's the um, fundamental essentials of a, an RRSP. Do you think if we've covered that material sufficiently or, or do you have some I, I, questions about that? I, th I think it's good, but one of the things that, you know, let's just say I'm, I'm starting out, I'm a 20-year-old person who has just gotten a job, you know, I'm not making a lot of money right now, and I guess that I I, I think I'm in the, in the bracket where I'm not paying a lot of taxes. <clears throat> should I invest in an RSP right at the start, or should I be investing in a TFSA and, and maybe explain a little bit about the TFSAs, for example. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the uh, when you look at it, when you're comparing. So I, I, before we before I answer that question, I'm just going to back up and just mention one thing, uh, uh, Ron. And when you when you look at investing, so if you look at your investment dollars as a uh, as a stream, you basically have a point in which it die it diverts into the two different major types of accounts that you can go to. One of them being registered accounts, and one of them being non registered. And the only difference between the two is. Registered accounts in Canada have some sort of tax benefit. So an RRSP is, a, is an example and is the primary and longest standing version of a registered account within Canada. Uh, we'll talk about non-registered afterwards. So once we get into the registered side, that's where you have your different account types where RRSP being the primary one, tax-free savings account was the one that was introduced in the uh, around 2009. And so uh, with a tax-free savings account, what it does is it allows your money to grow on a tax-free basis. And that means, you know, it's Money that is added to your account on an after-tax basis, so there is no tax deduction, but mm. the money is able to grow tax-free for as long as it's invested within the account. So for somebody, going back to your example, if somebody who's relatively young isn't earning a lot of money and therefore is in a relatively low income tax bracket, the savings that they're going to generate from an RRSP are probably going to be less than the savings they're going to get from a tax-free savings account because of the fact that they're going to benefit from tax-free growth in their investments over an extended period of time. So if they're only, let's use the example of they're, uh, they're paying in the 15 to 20% uh, income tax bracket. At 15 to 20%, they're still gonna be less than if they're gonna uh, be taking out a, a, capital, a large capital gain 30 years from now when they're at a much higher 
uh, income tax bracket and they sell their investment. It's in, it's grown in value over that 30 year period. The marginal tax rate at that time is probably going to be closer to 54% for them. Capital gains are taxed at half of only half of your capital gain is included. So you're essentially only paying about 27% tax. So you're saving a much higher rate with the tax-free savings account than you would be on the RSP at the point in time in which you're not earning a lot of money. The other benefit of the RSP is the fact that you can go back and you can you don't you lose your contribution room. If you don't use the contribution room when you're younger, you instead choose to allocate your money to the TFSA. Once you are starting to earn a little bit more money and you want to start to reduce your taxable income, you can go back and you can catch up essentially for the years in which you did not contribute to your RSP. So for the last five years, if you didn't contribute to your RSP, you can still go back and you can add the money that would have been accumulated or the, the room that you would have had for each of those five years continues to build each year and you can go back and you can catch that up in order to reduce your taxable income in a year in which you maybe have a higher uh, income and therefore you're going to have a higher tax bracket or be in a higher tax bracket excuse me and then you can lower that by deducting uh, your contributions to the RSP. So that's really interesting I think one of the things that um, I understand from that so Alex as you're saying if you're investing in the TFSA as you're younger in a very low tax bracket you can then, let's say, 10 years from now in the future, if you're making a lot more money and let's say you're in the 35, 40% tax bracket, anything that you have not contributed over the last 10 years into an RSP, you can then add those up and contribute that under the current tax liability. So now you're getting a taxable benefit based on that 30 or 35%. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so to to um, provide some context to this conversation, let's take a look at what the tax rate is for for Ontario residents, and the uh, the rates I'm uh, about to give are, are not going to be uh, too different from province to province. But obviously, uh, people if they are, they're not Ontario residents and they're listening to this should be checking their own uh, provincial combined uh, federal provincial tax rates. But here in Ontario, on the first $49,231 of income, your marginal tax rate is 20%. When you move up to uh, the tax bracket where you're earning between 86698 and 98463 which I think is going to capture a fair bit of the population, uh, your marginal tax rate jumps from 20% up to 31.5%. And mm-hmm. then uh, when you go uh, over 106,717 up to 150,000, now your marginal tax rate's at 43%. Over 235,675, your marginal tax rate is 53.5%. And there's a few other tax brackets in between those three that I mentioned. But it gives you some context as to uh, what the impact is of tax savings for our, our RSP. So if you're 25 years old, you're just starting out and your income is below $49,000, although there is a tax benefit to the RSP, there isn't a significant tax benefit. The tax-free savings account is going to allow you to build up your, your uh, savings uh, without the benefit of a tax break. But oftentimes I find the younger people are using the tax-free savings account, not just to get started with their savings, but because they're trying to save up for a home purchase, although that's all changed recently with uh, mm-hmm. the new uh, first-time home buyer's plan. But usually in the early stages, that that is uh, the, the route that we advise 
Um, and uh, the RRSP is something we suggest you start contributing once you uh, build up to a higher tax bracket. That being said, it doesn't have to be uh, either or. Mm. So you you can have, uh, let's say, for example, if we identify that you should be saving 20% of your income, you, we can help you decide what percentage of that should go into the RRSP, what percentage should go into the tax-free savings account, depending on what your objectives are. So the portion that's going to the tax-free savings account may be for an objective that is more current. Uh, the objective for the RSP is of obviously for something that's more down the road. Right. And I think, you know, John or Alex, I think a, a lot of people look at all the different investment vehicles in, and it is very confusing, you know, should I, you know, I'm in my 30s, I've, I've just had uh, a child, and people are talking about, is it our ESPs now? Right. Um, definitely, I'm not necessarily making maybe a lot more money, but I've had a lot more people to take care of. I, now I'm a father, I'm a young father, but I need, I want to start saving for my child's education. Do I, do I invest in RESP and maybe cut back on some of my own RSPs or do I continue with the TFSA? I guess this is where your advice kind of comes into play, but you know, in, in that simple scenario, what, what sort of advice would you give someone? I, I'll jump in here quickly, and then uh, Dad, you can uh, you can comment as well. It it depends really on uh, a situation to situation basis. So it it really depends on what your how, how much extra cash flow you have and how much you can afford to dedicate to your child's uh, educational savings plan. So the RESPs, as you mentioned, are the uh, registered uh, education savings plans that are available here within Canada. And basically, what it does is it just allows you to contribute a certain amount of money each year and then be eligible to receive uh, grant money from the government up to 20% of the first $2,500 that you invest on an annual basis. And so um, it allows you to uh, accumulate $500 in grants and the money grows within the account uh, and is essentially tax-free until it's withdrawn in the hands of the, uh, uh, of the beneficiary, which is oftentimes the, uh, your child that you're creating the, uh, the plan for. And so there are benefits to the uh, to the RESP plan, but it is by no means the only way that you can accumulate money for a child. So if you're in a situation where, you know, right now you may be relatively young, uh, a young parent, and you don't have a lot of discretionary cash flow, and you may have other intermediate needs, and therefore it's it, you want to be able to allocate that money towards maybe it's buying a house, for example. You, mm-hmm. you think it's more important for you to save money towards buying a house so that way you and your young family can live comfortably somewhere. That's fine. You may lose out on a couple of years of, of grant money in the uh, on, in the interim, like the RSP. You can go back and you can do catch up. Unlike the RSP, where you can catch up many years all at once, in the RESPs, you can only catch up two years at a time. However, you can uh, you can do that down the road when you have more discretionary cash flow. You can also utilize other account types that are uh, essentially just by creating a trust. You know, setting aside money for your children. It doesn't generate the grant money, but it. It has a little bit more flexibility with how the when the money is withdrawn, what it can be used towards, and the and the freedom with which it can be shared between siblings. So, Dad, is there anything you wanted to that, that, uh, add on that? Yes. So uh, this is an important point. So on the RESPs, registered educational savings plans, the uh, question we often get is, how much should I be putting into the RESP? And you can put in fifty thousand dollars maximum. Uh, an education, it depends on the type of education, obviously, you're looking at and uh, on a, a post-secondary basis. 
Today uh, um, in Ontario, if you're going to uh, into a program that is subsidized by the government, you're looking uh, at tuition of uh, roughly something in the range of uh, eight, $9,000. And if the program is not sub subsidized, maybe twi twice that. Uh, then on top of that, you have obviously, if you're living in residence, the cost of residency. So it can add up quite significantly. So how much do you put in? And how do you know how much you should be putting in when you're when you're a child's just an infant? Well, first of all, not everyone attends post-secondary education, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Certainly, we have uh, a lot of people in the last two, three generations that have achieved post-secondary uh, designations. But uh, we also need tradespeople and we uh, we need other skilled uh, skill sets in society. And not everyone who was born into a family is destined to go into post-secondary education or, or into a program that's going to require a lot of money. So how much you put in is something that you're going to have to make a decision uh, up front and, and say, okay, well, if they do go to post-secondary education and they're going to go attend a university that's going to cost, for the sake of discussion, $40,000, Am I going to pay for the whole thing? Or do we get our child to work during the summer times and help uh, subsidize their own education? And my experience indicates that it is best to get the child involved in paying for their education so that they appreciate what they are receiving. So if you're looking at a, at a total cost, uh, let's assume they live at home and they're only paying for the tuition. And, and let's say for the sake of discussion, if we're using round numbers, that uh, that's $10,000 uh, per year or $40,000 over four years. Well, perhaps uh, as a parent, after doing the calculation with the assistance of a, a professional advisor, uh, what the future value of that is and uh, determine today, okay, we want to subsidize 50% of that cost. And then the other 50% will be taken on uh, as a responsibility by by the child as they uh, attain a, an age where they can start working and uh, and help um, pay for their own way through. And I think that's, that's a fair arrangement. When you uh, sit as a parent, make the commitment that you're going to save 100% of the potential future cost of a, of education. That's a huge burden on you. And yet, and you have your own uh, retirement plan to, to pay for as well. So I, I think that is uh, something parents need to consider is uh, the fact that not every child is going to attend post-secondary education. Therefore you can utilize something called an in-trust uh, plan and you can have an informal uh, trust account whereby you can put in money. There, there are no upfront tax savings uh, whatever income is attributed to the investments of that trust will flow back to the uh, beneficiary, which is the child. And when the child's a, um, a minor, obviously they're not going to pay any taxes on it. Uh, and uh, the investment uh, is likely going to be a capital gains earning instrument, which means that whatever income is generated is going to be minimal and taxes will be uh, non-existent. So it's, a, it's another great way of saving and the child can accumulate uh, that money or the parent can accumulate that money for the child, at which point in the future can be used to start a business, to purchase a car. Uh, something that something beyond education uh, that is going to be required or for the child that does not attend post-secondary education. So we need to consider that and provide some flexibility to the parents and grandparents. And then you, and that's another thing. If parents, you have grandparents who are contributing potentially to education and maybe parents want to take on the responsibility of contributing to the RESP, grandparents potentially can can fund a trust account to help with uh, other potential expenses. So there's an idea as to how you can approach this problem. 
so the multiple, RSP multiple ways. Yeah. Sorry, uh, Ron, just to jump in on the, the last point my dad made there. The RESP does come with very stringent rules regarding who can contribute and, you know, when when different people contribute, which which child can access it. And I'm referring to a family RESP. So basically it's a, a one account which you can designate multiple children within and they can and they can uh, share the money that's in the uh, that's been contributed to the account up to certain rules and regulations regarding uh, which how much grant money they access. But anyway, I digress. Mm -hmm. The point being, there are a lot of rules that are uh, applied to it, and only certain people can can actually contribute to those types of accounts. And so as a result, it creates a little bit of logistical difficulty when you're trying to get multiple family members who want to contribute to a child's education, you know, whether uh, it's aunts and uncles or uh, other people who want to give money so that child has money for their uh, for their education. Uh, in the future, the RESP has limitations with uh, with regards to who can put the money in. Whereas when you have the trust, it's a much uh, cleaner and simpler vehicle for uh, for allocating money towards a kid's future education. So I think if somebody's considering an RESP, that's where you know a financial advisor or a portfolio manager comes into play, and and they can you guys can give the advice that is needed based on the circumstances and what people are looking for. So we've talked about. RSPs. We've talked. We've gone into TFSAs. We, we've talked a little bit about the RESP. Are there any other registered uh, accounts that we talked to? I, I think John, you had mentioned first time, the first home first savings first account, home savings account. Yeah. Well, what, uh, Alexander, what is that? You can, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a brand new uh, savings feature yeah. that's just been introduced. And uh, it's so new that uh, not all institutions have set it up, uh, yeah. but it does allow um, yeah, young people or anyone that you don't have to be young. As long as you haven't purchased a home before, you can put money in up to a, what's the maximum, Alexander? Now, 20 it's, or 30,000. It's 40,000 for a right. lifetime. It's $8,000 per year. Um, the first time home or the first home savings account is a combination of uh, the benefits of a TFSA and an RSP. Contributions to the uh, first home savings account are tax deductible and it's tax-free growth. So it, it takes the two major benefits of a TFSA and an RSP, it mashes them together, but it's only eligible for people who haven't purchased a home in the past, as you mentioned. So it was just launched in April of this year, uh, of 2023, and you're able to contribute $8,000 per year up to a maximum of $40,000. Now, one thing that we did mention with the RSP and the TFSA is both of those can also be used as vehicles for withdrawing money from for purchasing a home. So an RSP, for example, as a uh, first-time home withdrawal plan or withdrawal allowance, so you can basically take out a portion of your RSP in order to contribute to a, a housing purchase. So in that, in that instance, it's $35,000 that you can withdraw from your RSP tax-free, uh, and then you can use that to purchase a home. Now, it comes with a little bit of restriction in that you have a two-year grace period after which you have to repay the loan over a 15-year period, if I'm not mistaken, to uh, back to your RSP. So it's basically borrowing from your retirement in order to fund your your home, your your first home purchase. The TFSA can also be used for uh, withdrawing money and using it for something such as a uh, a home purchase. That's often prior to the uh, first home savings uh, accounts creation. That's something that we recommended. And what I did personally for when I bought my home was uh, we utilized the uh, TFSA because it's uh, it's a little bit easier. So you you already have the tax-free withdrawal of the money coming out, but there's no restriction or requirement for you to recontribute that money back 
into the TFSA account. And so it provides a little bit more flexibility. If your circumstances change, you don't have to worry about paying back your home loan immediately. You can uh, just focus on making your mortgage payments and, and maintaining uh, uh, your home as opposed to repaying it back to your RSP. So going back to the, the first home savings account, it, it combines both of those into one simplified feature and you know forty thousand dollars is and if you're living in uh the gta the greater toronto area you'll know that that's uh that's not going to be enough uh, on its own to buy a house but it'll at least give you a sizable portion of your down payment potentially and then you can utilize the other two account types to supplement your your down payment and uh, use that money to contribute towards a first home uh, purchase i i think that's something that was not well thought out by the legislators that came up with this new savings account is that the cost of acquiring a home is very different from one part of the country to the other. Yeah. And uh, there should have been some kind of consideration for that, either that or just have a much higher limit. Obviously, it doesn't matter what part of the country you're in, $40,000 is not going to cut it. You're going to need a lot more than that. And uh, given that that is a, a large problem for most Canadians and, and the current uh, younger generation, those people who are um, uh, younger than 40 uh, are having a, a seriously difficult time getting into the housing market, which uh, is a problem that's partially been caused by uh, policies uh, of the recent past. And uh, to introduce this new savings plan is wonderful, but it has to also be practical. And $40,000 as a limit is, uh, I, I think, really uh, falls short. Yeah, you know, I recently uh, traveled across Canada and I haven't found in any province that can buy a house for $160,000. So yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not sure where, where you can put $40,000 down as a 25% deposit. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if you want to say the... And I don't, the average home price in uh, in southern Ontario is, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars or just under a million dollars. Even if uh, you know a half a million dollar home is a uh, hundred thousand dollars that you need in down payment, assuming you're putting twenty percent down, so it really is not a lot. So that's why I said it has to be contributed or it needs to be uh, supplemented with other investment accounts, and oftentimes that's going to come from your RSP and your TFSA. Anything else from a, a registered accounts that that people should be thinking about, other than obviously what we've talked about: RSPs, RESPs, uh, FSHA, and uh, the TFSA. Well, it, something else that people may wish to consider are the locked-in retirement accounts. So. Sometimes people are working for employers that have a defined benefit pension plan or just a, a defined contribution pension plan. And I don't know, Ron, if you want to get into the nuances between those two different types of pension plans. But when you have a defined benefit pension plan and you leave your employer, you can transfer the, the accumulated pension benefit to a um, to your own RSP, except it's designated as a locked in R RSP. Uh, mm -hmm. We we uh, use the acronym LIRA, locked in retirement account, um, as a short form to describe that, and that permits uh, the money to continue growing in a tax sheltered environment. But it is designated specifically for proceeds of a of a pension plan. You cannot contribute cash flow from your employment income to build that up. Um, furthermore. 
it depends also on whether that pension plan was federally or provincially incorporated. So if you end up working for a company that had a, a, fed, a federally incorporated pension plan, that is one type of lira. And if you uh, alternatively have worked for, uh, or later on you work for a company that had their pension plan uh, provincially incorporated, you're going to end up having two different liras. They're both called lira. They're not distinguished in terms of the acronym or, or the type of account, but they're going to be separate account numbers simply because the sourcing of the retirement asset uh, was uh, incorporated differently um, uh, and, and depending on the level of government. And, and just, sorry, and, Dad, just to jump in, it, it could also be called something else. So LRSP or RLSP are examples of different types of uh, locked-in retirement savings accounts. It's just the acronym can change depending on the uh, jurisdiction. So from province to province, they sometimes have different acronyms. So just for people in uh, different provinces, if they... Yeah. Here. Just yeah. a clarification on like what what does locked in mean? It, it means it means you cannot access the money prior to age fifty five. So after age fifty five, you can start withdrawing that money, but there is actually a formula that must be followed, and the formula is quite complex. And usually, the custodian of the uh, lira. Uh, or of the locked-in retirement savings plan will will provide that uh, the range uh, there's a minimum and a maximum withdrawal rate. Unlike an RRSP where there is no maximum, but um, when you make a withdrawal uh, or a RIF where there's no maximum, uh, there is a minimum on a RIF or registered retirement income fund uh, mm -hmm. on a locked-in retirement account, which converts to an L RIF or, or a, a, a locked-in fund, LIF. <laughs> Here's where we go through the alphabet soup yeah. of account types. So there is a range. There's a minimum and a maximum. And the a maximum is usually determined by the yield on 10-year bonds in your province of jurisdiction. So it's a bit complex, but suffice it to say, Ron, what the government intended from the outset is that this is pension money. They don't want you pulling it out all in a lump sum after age 55 and spending it all, because then that means uh, the people are going to become more reliant on the government. Right. So essentially, they want to ensure that that money lasts for the remainder of their lifetime. And uh, that's the distinguishing feature of a, of a locked-in plan versus a regular RSP. Uh, uh, a distinction, again, further distinction would be, <clears throat> excuse me, if you have an RSP, you can take money out, for example, to buy a home and then put it back over a period of time if it's dust, or you, you can actually even take money out and be maybe taxed uh, significantly at that time. But with the locked in, you just can't touch it until no. 55. No, you, you can't touch it. Now, it's interesting you brought that up about taking money out of the RRSP. Oftentimes, I shouldn't say often, but from time to time, people may run into financial difficulty and they um, want to pay down some debt that they've accumulated with a financial institution, they will contact us and say, well, you know, I want to take some money out of my RSP to pay down this, this debt I have. Now, it depends on the debt, obviously, but if, if unless it's a credit card where you're getting paying 28% interest, at which point it's not much different. Uh, but if you have a debt that where the interest rate is uh, lower, taking money out of an RSP adding it to your income. And usually people who find themselves in this situation might be in a 38, 40%, let's call it 40% marginal tax rate. You're going to pay 40% taxes to pay off a debt that has a 6% interest rate. It makes no sense. Wow. So it, it's, it's something that people should 
think twice about before considering an RS, an RSP, even though it has some liquidity prior to retirement age, it's really not a great source for emergency funding. You're better off arranging to have a line of credit set up early on when you acquire a home for those people who have acquired our home. And if you haven't acquired a home, you can have a line of credit that's unsecured. But that should be your first source of emergency credit uh, should you require emergency credit other than uh, your savings, of course, not an RSP. Uh, the RSP is designed for long-term wealth accumulation targeted specifically for your retirement. If you absolutely had to dip into your investment savings, the TFSA is a much more forgiving vehicle to to utilize rather than the RSP. Hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Now on, on the subject of TFSA, to carry the point further, when the TFSA was introduced, uh, there's a lot of promotion that happened in the media by the major banks in Canada, and they promoted it as, an, uh, as a short-term savings account. And that's what a lot of people did is they put their short-term savings into the tax-free savings account thinking this this is what you do where you put your short-term savings but in fact that's wrong that's that's not the way a tax-free savings account should be utilized that's not to say you can't access it uh in the short term obviously you can but the the real reason the tax-free savings account was introduced by the government of the day was the original intent was to eliminate the capital gains taxes. And when the government of the day went to the bureaucrats and said, we want to eliminate capital gains taxes, they shook their head and they said, that is going to be extraordinarily complicated because we've had different inclusion rates for capital gains calculations over the course of time. And it's just going to create an, an immense amount of, of complexity. In addition to that, the hit to the treasury in the short term is going to be quite significant. So as an alternative to eliminating capital gains taxes, the tax-free savings account was born, but it was designed by the government of the day to allow people to save into capital gains earning assets for long-term wealth creation without taxation. And therefore, the tax-free savings account is best utilized for that purpose. And if you're going to be tax sheltering your, uh, back then, what was a 1% interest rate for in short-term savings accounts, and even today it's 5%, if you're tax sheltering that, that is of minimal benefit. You want to tax shelter something like capital gains, where the rates of return are significantly higher potentially, and the numbers are going to be significantly higher when you withdraw money. And really, that's the purpose of the TFSA is for long-term capital gains. You can use it for short-term requirements if necessary, but you should be thinking about it in terms of long-term, a long-term savings vehicle. I think the TFSA, I, I, I really like that idea, um, but sometimes it's confusing when, when I look at savings account, I, I, I tend to think about bank accounts. But really, as you said, that's a vehicle and you can you can put anything in it so you can invest that money into stocks and bonds as well. Yes, absolutely. A tax-free savings account is is a perfect vehicle for investing in stocks. Um, and we say stocks and bonds together because oftentimes you, know, you have a, a balanced portfolio that blends the two. But if you're going to be investing for long-term wealth accumulation and you can you can handle some volatility, stocks obviously are the preferred vehicle in a professionally managed environment, or, or you can invest in mutual funds. 
whether they're um, stock only or balanced, which means they're, they're a blend of stocks and bonds. I really don't see the, the merit of investing in a bond fund within a tax-free savings account since it has minimal growth potential. So you do want to lean more toward uh, growth-oriented assets. And uh, even for those people who want to speculate a little bit and they want to go into uh, a more uh, focused uh, stock portfolio, for example, you may want to go into a software stock fund uh, that is can be quite volatile, but also can give you significant potential for, for capital gains in the future. That's the place to do it is in a tax-free savings account. Yeah. ETFs are also eligible to be held within uh, a tax-free savings account. Uh, and, and just further- Sorry, what's an that, ETF? Sorry, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> an ETF is an exchange-traded fund. So it is not actively managed in the same way that a, a mutual fund is. And so it therefore has a lower fee structure than a, a mutual fund would. So it's usually, it's created to replicate uh, either an index or a, uh, a group of securities. So for example, you can uh, purchase an ETF that buys all of the healthcare stocks on a particular index, and it'll track the performance of each of those healthcare stocks exclusively, rather than having to buy the entire index. So it'll, let's say, for example, on the S&P 500, you can you can buy a, a, a one of the uh, one of the spider ETFs or pick your provider uh, that replicates the performance of all of the healthcare stocks on the on the S&P 500. Anything further to add, Dad? What's a spider? Yeah. <laughs> Other than the crawlies, the SPD spider's the brand. Yeah, it's a, it's the manufacturer of the exchange traded fund. Uh, it's a S&P the uh, organization that creates the index. So yeah, there's different organizations that sponsor exchange traded funds. And that's uh, the one Alexander mentioned is just one of them. There's many different companies here in Canada. We have a company called Horizons and and the RBC, et cetera, you know, different banks. So there's a bunch of them that are available. And uh, that's where, uh, once again, you need the guideline of a professional to help you uh, do that. And in our case, in our practice, we actually have created portfolios, preset portfolios um, that do utilize exchange traded funds uh, extensively to create a, a strategy, whether it's uh, long-term 100% equity growth or one that is more moderate in its nature, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Uh, so whether it's an exchange traded fund, uh, individual stock holdings, actively managed portfolio stocks, the tax-free savings account is a is a great tax sheltered environment uh, within which these assets can grow over an extended time frame, and you should be looking at time frames of at least three years and ideally uh, five years plus for these types of instruments. The other thing that you can do is if you you know let's take the example of somebody who scores balanced. Which, uh, when you, whenever you uh, join a uh, a financial management firm, you usually complete a questionnaire. Uh, it's called an investor profile questionnaire. Then uh, the purpose of that is to determine your level of risk tolerance. Most people tend to score balanced, which is a composition of sixty percent equities and forty percent bonds or fixed income. You can take the sixty percent of your total assets and put those concentrate those in the TFSA in order to benefit from the benefit from the taxable tax benefits of the TFSA account, and then focus the fixed income portion of your of your portfolio on the uh, in a different account. So you can utilize the RSP, for example, rather than the uh, uh, the TFSA for the fixed income portion of, of your portfolio. And, and that, that is certainly a great strategy that Alexander uh, mentioned. Uh, sometimes, though, people psychologically get 
a little flustered because they might say during a review, why is my TFSA down so much and my 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 non tfsa is not what's why don't we move that over and so it's it's important that 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 point is explained that the investor understands why uh the capital gains assets are in the tax shelter and the non-capital gain assets or the interest-bearing assets are in the non-sheltered account so we see it uh, together as a portfolio, uh, but sometimes investors get confused by that. So it's important that that is explained at the outset, so so you don't run into that difficulty or that frustration. Well, I think we can spend probably another couple of hours talking about all the different things here. I'm, I'm sure you'll have other podcasts, but uh, yes, <laughs> I, I'm I'm thinking maybe as in a summary, what advice would you give, say? I don't know, 20 year old Ron who is just starting to invest, or maybe, you know, 45, 50 year old Ron who says, Hey, I haven't done anything and I need to start investing. Is it similar? Is it different? What would you suggest? Oh, it's, uh, I, it's going to be very different. I, I think essentially, if you, I, I like to, I like to refer to the time frame after age 50 as the retirement red zone. And that is the 15 most, assuming you retire at 65. Now, no, no one says you have to retire at 65. And in fact, these days, very few people actually retire fully at 65. But it's a commonly accepted retirement date. Uh, it can be the date upon which you transition to semi-retirement, for example. But that age, 50 to 65, is the retirement red zone. And what that means is you got to maximize the, the growth of your capital. Traditionally, uh, there's, there was a rule of thumb that was used in the financial industry that said, well, when you're younger, you can afford to invest aggressively because if you lose money, it's not a big deal. You have a long time frame to wait, wait for it to recover. Uh, and you can't do that when you're older. But in fact, the guidance I give is uh, the opposite. Uh, although it's great to make 20% on an account when you're 25, you're probably making 20% on $5,000, <laughs> which, which is wonderful, but it's a thousand dollars profit. Uh, whereas on $500,000, it's, it's, it's a hundred thousand dollars profit. So it's important that in your, in your retirement red zone timeframe that you actually try and maximize your rate of return. So uh, Ron at age 45 should be looking at, first of all, Perhaps, depending on how much has been accumulated up until that point, may have to make a material change in their standard of living. Maybe has to downsize prematurely. Uh, maybe has to downsize the um, from two cars to one car. Uh, or may want to move to a place where they can uh, use public transit. Some of these ideas obviously sound radical to people, but um, I do have an instance where I had a, um, a professional family, a, a medical doctor and his spouse who lived in a, a large, uh, beautiful home in Richmond Hill. And uh, one Sunday afternoon, uh, the husband says to his wife, after looking at his uh, investment portfolio and retirement accounts, we're simply not going to have enough at the pace we're going right now with our lifestyle. We're not going to be able to save enough for our retirement. We've got to do something different. And they made the tough decision to downsize their home out of a beautiful five-bedroom home into a condo. 
And um, it was tough to do, but that's where I came into the picture and I designed a plan for them uh, to save uh, systematically on an annual basis a, a certain amount. And of course, met with them annually and, and semi-annually to make sure they were on target. And um, many years later, uh, when they got to age 70, they were able to retire with a comfort that they desired. With a, We actually hit hit the financial target that we determined when they were 50. It, it sometimes requires some very painful decisions when you're 45 years old or 50 years old and you haven't saved enough. Uh, when you're 25 years old, the guidance is save 20% of your money because you're going to need it in the future. And I think Alexander sees this with his peer group. He's not 25, but <laughs> he's closer to 25 than I am. Uh, Alexander, do you want to elaborate a little bit on the mindset of the, the the people around your age? Yeah, I think it's just a lot of times people have the the mindset where they discount the future as, you know, it's it's a long way away. I don't need to worry about that right now. I've got a lot of time to play with. And what ends up happening is they they opt for immediate gratification, you know, whether that's utilizing money for discretionary purchases, such as consumable goods, travel, what have you. And not to say that those things are not important and that you shouldn't be allocating uh, uh, some of your cash flow to those things and you should enjoy your life in the present. But at the same time, there needs to be a balance and there needs to be consideration for the future requirements that you're going to need in retirement. You know, when you get to retirement, a lot of people are not generating employment income anymore you know they're whatever age it tends to be you know we've talked about the fact that 65 is not a a frequent retirement age but at some point generally people get to a a stage in life where they're no longer able to work and so you need to rely on uh, your accumulated investment income in order to uh, sustain yourself during that period and a lot of people my age I've noticed they they tend to opt for the immediacy of of having something now rather than setting that money aside for the future so I think it's important that people understand that there's there's only so much time that you have that the money is going to uh, accumulate and grow and there's the compounding effect that also allows that money to grow the longer it's invested the more money you're going to end up with in the future even if you're only setting aside a little bit now 10 percent is better than zero percent and yeah. I think a lot of people get stuck in the mindset of, well, I can't save 20. I can't afford that. So I may as well do zero. Well, that's <laughs> not true. You should look at what you can afford to set aside. As my dad said, maybe adjust your lifestyle so you can get closer to that 20% uh, threshold that you should be setting aside. And, you know, once you're uh, a more in a more established position, then maybe you go past 20% in order to catch up. But you need to still be thinking about the long-term benefits and needs that you're going to have when you're in retirement. Something that is very critical for savers to understand is there's three factors to wealth creation. You have amount of money, rate of return, and time. And of these three factors, most people believe rate of return is the most important, when in fact, it is actually time. Alexander alluded to the concept of compounding. Compound interest is considered one of the one uh, one of the mirror wonders of the world yeah, uh, magic. it was it was, it was uh, yeah well I, I forget who said it but they said it was uh, the eighth wonder of the world uh it, it may have been uh one of the Rothschilds or somebody else I don't remember but maybe it was even uh, Sir Winston Churchill who said it was the eighth wonder of the world but somebody said it was the eighth wonder of the world and it's very important to understand that compounding your capital over an extended time frame is what builds wealth Rate of return obviously is important. Amount of money is obviously important. But when you do the math, 
time is the most critical element. And this is why it's important to start young. As soon, with your first job, start to save. And as Alexander said, it doesn't matter if you can't do 20 or 25% upfront, 5%, 10%, just get into the habit of saving. Uh, when, you, when you create your standard of living early on in your life after um, starting your life, you need to look at what what lifestyle you're looking for. And then you budget backwards and say, what can 80% of my cash flow buy me in terms of lifestyle, in terms of house, in terms of car? And then that's how you're going to decide how much house and car you're going to get, which are the two biggest expenses. And, and if you start on that basis of budgeting your expenditures first on uh, after calculating 80% of your take-home pay, then you're going to be far better off. And you know, 20% sounds like a huge number, but think about this for a second. When I began my career, there one of my one of my peers, David Chilton, wrote a book called The Wealthy Barber. And it's a wonderful book. And if you if people haven't acquired it, uh, there's actually an updated version of it. Uh, the Wealthy Barber is based on the concept of uh, saving 10% of your income and investing for the future. And 10% is a is a decent starting point. Uh, but 10% um, based on the rates of return that we've achieved in the financial industry in the last uh, 10 years or what's widely available in the in the financial industry is is not going to cut it. So if you can, you you want to build on that number and try and get up as much as possible. Just a, a, on a, a quick note, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, arguably one of the best pension plans in the world, uh, they force teachers to save roughly 13% of their pay. The the employer then matches it. So they're up around 25%. And even at that, they only cover two thirds of your best five years when, when you retire. So, so starting early is critical. Did, uh, do you remember when we were younger, dad, the, uh, when you sat down, uh, my brother and I were, I don't know how old we would have been. I might've been 10. He might've been eight. And uh, you gave us the example of compounding. Do you remember uh, doing that? I don't, I don't remember doing that, but it sounds like something I would Sounds like John. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he sat us down and he, he gave us uh, he gave us two choices. He said, one of you can start saving $250 an hour until you're, I think it was 65 that he used the number. And then one of you can wait 10 years and then start saving $500. And he randomly assigned, he said, Alexander, you're going to take uh, the $500, but you start 10 years later. And the uh at the end of the exercise you know we cal he calculated it out and he goes look this is how much money you're going to have and my brother had significantly more than me even though i'd saved at a higher rate for you know an extended period of time the fact that he started sooner allowed that money to compound over that 10 year period in which uh, i wasn't saving anything and the benefit was that he uh, was further ahead than i was at the end of the uh, the exercise and i was really upset it pissed me off that i got the uh i got the the worst portfolio but i think he he did it intentionally because it it stuck with me more that that lesson yeah. really uh really hit me and it uh it, it it was embedded in my mind that you know that was something that uh that was important to set aside money right from the very beginning you know i remember working at my first employer ci investments and they gave us the opportunity to uh i think it was we could contribute up to five percent and uh, they would match up to to five percent of our uh of our income and I remember looking at it as well if they're going to give me an extra it's essentially an extra five percent bump on my pay yeah now i'm not getting it right now but i'm going to get it in the future why would i not take advantage of that that's instead of getting paid whatever it was forty thousand when i started it was an, an extra five percent on top of that so an extra two thousand dollars so 
Absolutely. Anyway, it's an an important uh, an important lesson to uh, uh, yeah. to remember. You know, back then you were talking about uh, savings and 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 how much money you can, and, and depending on your lifestyle. I knew this uh, gentleman, and he was a multimillionaire. And he says, he goes, I can't afford a Ferrari. And I said, what do you mean you can't? He goes, nope. He goes, based on how I save and the lifestyle that I want, there's no way I can afford a Ferrari in my driveway. And I went, hmm, that's interesting. And he's a multimillionaire. Smart. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. How much how much you earn doesn't matter as much as how much you save. So right. you can have someone who earns a million dollars a year. And if they save nothing at the end of 10 years, they have nothing. Exactly. Whereas if you earn a hundred thousand a year per year and you save 20%, then at the end of 10 years, you have 20,000 times your rate of return times compounding, and it's going to be something more than nothing. Yeah. So that's a, that's exactly a good point. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad I actually did something right as a parent. Uh, I, I don't recall that story. So <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I'm glad I actually did that. Uh, they were few and far between. So they're more present in my mind. <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm sure he can recall a few. Lessons. I know you, I know you guys have talked, we've talked a lot about registered accounts. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I mean, I know there's other things as non-registered accounts, but I don't know if we have time for, for just introduction on that or not? Yeah, we can we can just do a, a quick summary. And essentially, a non-registered account is is basically uh, any any type of account that doesn't have uh, any taxable benefit associated with it. Uh, we basically treat it as an overflow, so you should be maximizing your contributions to your registered accounts first, because obviously they carry with them tax benefits that, as an investor, you'll want to take advantage of. But uh, the non-registered accounts also have uh, benefits in that they can be utilized within a corporation. So a lot of our clients tend to be doctors or medical professionals or business owners. And so when they have a professional account, they have assets that sit within that corporation. Uh, rather than leaving that money in a basically what's a, a, just a, a cash account at the bank, a, a checking account at the bank, you can actually grow mm -hmm. that money on your behalf. And so that way the business can still benefit from capital appreciation over an extended period of time, just like you would want your retirement account to have. And so you can invest corporate assets uh, within a non-registered account. That's the only account type that you can utilize. Uh, the other benefit of a uh, non-registered account is uh, is the ability to utilize margin. I don't know if you want to uh, to touch on that, Dad, or if uh, we want to leave that as a subject for another day, but uh, margin is another benefit of uh, a non-registered account. Yeah, I, th I think we're coming uh, to the end of the today's program. Uh, just very quickly, uh, yes, non-registered accounts are where you can put invest money that perhaps you come into on a lump sum basis, whether it's the sale of a business, an inheritance, um, so somewhere where you can invest money that uh, it did not emanate originally from your cash flow, from employment income. And we can get into more details about, about distinguishing between a cash account, a margin account on a future episode. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I think we've used almost all of the letters in the alphabet. We still have a few left, but um, I'm sure there's many more things that we can chat about later. Thank you, John, Alex, very much for uh, inviting me on your podcast. And Bill, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, Ron, no, thank you. I, I really appreciate your voice in this one. And uh, John and Alex, this is a lot of information for listeners to process. And they want to get in touch with you. They've got further questions. How do they reach out to you? How do they get a hold of you to, to get some answers? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, they can reach out to us. We have a website. It's uh, medwealth.ca, M-E-D-W-E-A-L-T-H.ca, -E or johnsutsos.com. 
Uh, you can look either one of us online, look up either one of us online on LinkedIn uh, at uh, John Sutsos or Alexander Sutsos. Uh, we also have a, a company page. Uh, it's uh, MedWealth Financial Services on, uh, on LinkedIn. You can email us info at medwealth.ca if you have any questions or if you want to set up a free portfolio analysis or just to schedule a meeting to to ask some questions and, and get a little bit more understanding about where you are in your uh, in your journey towards retirement. Thank you very, very much. It's a lot of stuff to process. Again, if you've got questions, you know how to reach out to John and Alex to get the answers. And to our listeners, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you're a new listener and you like what you heard, you need to be sure to hit that subscribe button below so that the next episode will be automatically delivered to you and you won't miss an episode. We also humbly ask that you share and rate the podcast because by doing that, you will help others find it. I'm Bill Tucker, and on behalf of John and Alex Sutos, thank you again for listening. Thank you for listening to Prescribing Prosperity. Visit our website at med-wealth.ca, that's med-wealth.ca, for more information or to connect with us for a consultation. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and their guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of IPC Securities Corporation. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of a qualified and licensed financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment or retirement planning. MedWealth Financial Services can provide a private consultation to help you determine the suitability of any guidance discussed on the show.